From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 408 for the week of February 22nd, 2015. I'm your host and resident Disney historian for the Diz Unplugged, Michael Bowling. Walt Disney and those who built Disneyland had their roots in filmmaking. Entering Disneyland is similar to entering a theater. The attraction posters provide a sneak preview as to what is inside. The names on the windows of Main Street are the credits for some of the many people who contributed to Disneyland. Typically, the inscriptions on the windows appear as fictional businesses and often refer to a hobby of or the contribution made by the person honored. Disneyland has also dedicated windows in Frontierland, Adventureland, and Toontown. In my series, Window on Main Street, we learn about the people honored on these windows who worked to make Disneyland the happiest place on earth for all of us. Roland Rowley Fargo Crump Jr. joined the animation department in 1952 and worked on Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, and 101 Dalmatians. He moved to Wed Enterprises in 1959 and worked on attractions such as the Haunted Mansion, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, and It's a Small World. He left Wed in 1970 but was continually called back to work on projects for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center. Rolly, welcome to the Diz Unplugged. Thank you. It's an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to be on the show. Oh, thank you. Well, now, today, Disney artists and Imagineers attend schools like CalArts before applying to Disney for a job. Did you have any formal art training before joining the Disney studio? Well, this is interesting because Walt asked me the same question, and I told him high school. And Walt said, no, Roland, I want to know um, what formal training you had. And I said, oh, I went to Chenard for six Saturdays when I was 16. And about this time, he's starting to frown. He said, Roland, I want to know what your training is. You know, where do you come up with these crazy ideas? And I said, well, I have to thank you. And he said, what? And I said, it was because you put me in all these different rooms with all these different designers and I said, I learned from every one of them. And I said, plus the fact you had an open-door policy to where we could go anywhere we wanted it at, on the studio lot. And we could go into any of the departments. There was never any doors that were shut to us as an employee. And he, he really kind of got was shocked by that. I don't think he really realized how important it was for all of us to work with each other and learn from each other. But and that, but that's the kind of, from what I understand, that's the kind of kind of camaraderie he wanted. I mean, that's why he created the the had the art classes, and yeah. uh, and everything because that's exactly what he wanted was for people to learn from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a synergistic process. Yeah, that's just gorgeous, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when did you know you wanted to work for the Disney Studios? Well, from the time I was born. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no, no. You have to understand that when I was born in the 30s and, uh, you know, being born as a little artist uh, and I had to draw every day. My mother 
had tablets for me and a pencil for me, so I constantly drew. And, of course, when the Disney films showed up, everybody wanted to work for Disney if you were an artist. And so I was extremely uh, thrilled by that. I can remember that my father took me to see the Three Little Pigs when they first came out, and I think I had to be almost three or four years old, and I was completely blown away by that. I thought that was absolutely incredible. So once I saw the Disney cartoons, naturally, I wanted to work for Disney. So how did you end up getting hired by the Disney studio? How did I end up there? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot about that. <clears throat> My mother tried to get me a job when I was 16. She wrote a letter to Walt and said, My son is very, he's a very good, talented artist. I think you should hire him. <laughs> And I don't know something. I'm sure she got some letter back being really sweet. But, uh, no, uh, the bottom line is that uh, I went to a Christmas party at my uh, mother's cousin's house uh, when I was 22. And there was a woman there that had worked in animation at Disney Studios. And when I found that out, I said, oh, my God, you work in animation? She says, oh, yeah. I said, well, I want to get a job there. And I said, how do I do that? She says, well, I'll give you the phone number of the person to call. And it was Andy Ingman, who was the head of animation at that time. And so I called, not thinking that I'd ever get an answer, but they said, sure, come on in for an interview. So I went in with an interview, and they said, uh, well, tell show." And now they wanted me to bring my portfolio as well. And of course, my portfolio was just about high school. There was a lot of sketches in there that I did after high school that I did when I came home at night, but that was pretty much it. So I showed them my portfolio, and they said, well, we'll get back with you in a a week or so and let you know. I said, fine. Well, they called me, and they offered me a job, and uh, I went in there, and they said, "Uh, well, we can start you at $30 a week. Well, I was making $75 a week working in a ceramic factory, and I thought to myself, Jesus, I can't afford to quit the ceramic factory and, and go to work because my wife was pregnant with our first child and I was running this little house and I just thought this doesn't pan out. So I went to my mom and my mom says, honey, you always want to work for Disney, go for it. So I, I said yes and they hired me at $30 a week and I was told at a much, much later date, in fact, when, when they decided to move me to wed, they told me then that it was a, my portfolio was the worst portfolio of anyone that was ever hired in animation. <laughs> so that's how I got. That's how I got into Disneyland. I mean Disney. Well, they must have seen something in you. That, yeah. Um, yeah. But but see, you were a good son. You listened to your mother. If you if you hadn't done that, we wouldn't have all the wonderful attractions we have today. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing about it was. The only way I could really afford to work for Disney was to work on weekends with a friend of mine that built sewer manholes. So every weekend, Saturdays and Sunday, I was mixing mud and lowering bricks in the manhole so that I could afford to work for Disney. Oh and a gosh. lot of us did. A lot of the people <laughs> in animation had two jobs So because we just loved working there. Yeah. It was an exciting place to be. <laughs> so what was it like working at the Disney Studios in those days? Well, it, it was really interesting. It was almost like being on a campus. The, the, the surroundings were beautiful. The, uh, the rooms you were in were immaculate. The desks that you sat at were, were gorgeous. So the atmosphere was absolutely beautiful, plus 
the people you worked with were very, very exciting. So it was, uh, and of course, it was the the imagination was running rampant in the in there, and so you, and like I said earlier, I learned from everyone that I was ever in a room with, and all I can say was I was a good sponge because I had no formal training, so I listened and fell in love with everything I heard. Now, I would imagine there was so many, you know, young men just starting out that they were also, you know, all working closely together. There must have been an awful lot of hijinks and pranks going on to sort of relieve, you know, the, relieve the tension. Well, there was a lot going on. You know, it, it's, uh, it was an exciting place to work. And I know that one time uh, there's kind of an interesting story about that. They had an exhibit at the studio to where everyone could uh, present a piece of art. That could secretaries, that was anybody that wanted to draw a picture and put it in this uh, exhibit. And uh, I wouldn't put anything in it because I didn't think I had any personal work that would be worthwhile to be exhibited. So what happened, I went to it, and uh, all of a sudden I saw it because I thought, you know, if you're an artist, you know, you're either a painter or you're a sculptor or, you know, I put everybody that was going to be there at a real high level well, I got in there, and one of the animators had done a beautiful painting of gargoyles sitting on a log flying kites. And I thought, my, and it was in a beautiful gold frame. And I said, my God, I didn't know that you could do something humorous and put it in a frame, and it would be accepted. So I went home that night, and I did uh, a painting of lobsters drinking martinis. And so I've been painting like that ever since. Mm-hmm. That's crazy, and, and there's a lot of humor throughout your work. Oh yeah, that, that yeah. You've done. Yeah, I think I think uh, being a cartoonist, your uh, humor always is kind of the underlining uh, piece of work that you do. You know, even when I did my marijuana posters. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to those too in just a minute, because I bet a lot of our listeners don't know about those. <laughs> but um, what was what did you start out doing? What was your first assignment at the studio? I worked on Peter Pan. I was the last in-betweener hired on Peter Pan. <clears throat> and so that got me started. And uh, luckily, as time went on, they had us work overtime. And so the overtime helped supplement me to where I didn't have to work on the weekends. So that was good because we'd work five nights and Saturdays on overtime. So that really ate us up, you know. So it was great. I loved it. I, and I, you know, you know, when you're an artist and all of a sudden you're allowed to work in animation and you get to see the end products that you work on, it was damn exciting. Damn exciting. I'll bet. And, I, and for folks that just got the new 101 Dalmatians Blu-ray edition, you're, you appear on the Blu-ray. Well, the interesting thing about it is, yeah, I have a, the... the uh, or the poster on that, but anyway, the um, working on the Dal- working on the Dalmatians was when I was working for Eric Larson, and Eric wanted me to learn to be an animator because I was his assistant, and I really wasn't interested in animating. But anyway, he got me to animate all the spots on the puppies in the um, sequence where they're watching television. And so I, I worked out all the patterns for each individual dog, and uh, then I animated all the spots. And because, you know, when the dogs move, see, the dogs were uh, animated first. Then they came back with, you know, just no, no spots on them. So you had to put the spots 
And to keep the spots on the dog when the dog is moving is not an easy task because the spots got to stay with the dog and it has to stay in the right place. So it was quite an education for me to go through. So that's my claim to frame is that do all the spots on the puppies. That must have been quite quite a job because the spots have to move like with the puppy's muscles and all that too. <laughs> so now do you remember the first time you met Walt Disney? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, it was when I was invited to join WED. And mm-hmm. that was a long story. And I, I was so thrilled about going to WED. <clears throat> and so he was there and I walked up with, there was a group of us and uh, he, he held my hand and shook my hand. He said, Roland, it's a pleasure <clears throat> to have you join us. And I said, Mr. Disney, I says, it's a pleasure for me. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Roland, my name is Walt and don't you forget it. <laughs> he loved the first name basis. Right. And that continues to this day in the company. And Walt was one of the one. he was the one that gave you the nickname Roly, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, that came, that came years later. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the nickname Roly came later on. You know, the story, as it, as it goes, which is kind of cute, uh, he called, I, you know, was with him, I guess, on and off in the meetings, you know, quite a bit there in the beginning, and I just didn't listen. I never said anything, and he always called me Roland. And then one day he called me Owen, and I thought, okay, he can call me anything he wants. <laughs> and uh, there was an, a, a writer at the studio named Owen Crump that wrote for the uh, live-action pictures. So I think Walt got my name mixed up with Owen. And then one day, and this goes over over a period of maybe a year, he called me Orland. And I thought, fine, he can, he can call me anything he wants. And I asked his daughter, Diane, one time, I said, uh, the story's about me getting my name right with him. And she said, my dad always had trouble with names. Well, eventually, eventually, which is kind of cute, uh, we were in a meeting on the Haunted Mansion, and he turned to Yale Gracie, and he says, Yale, he says, I want you. And then he pointed to me and said, what's his name to work on this together? <laughs> well, so I finally made it to what's his name, and I thought, that's great. But the cute part about it is he eventually gave me the nickname Rolly, which is an old nickname for Rolly, and he called me Rolly from then on, which was just beautiful. Yeah. Well, what an honor to be given your nickname by Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah. yeah. was an honor. Yeah. Now, now, from reading your autobiography, it's kind of a cute story. It's clear that there was a deep mutual respect between you and Walt Disney. Yes, yes, there was. In fact, it's kind of cute. Um, I always felt, <clears throat> actually, I felt comfortable with him from the very beginning, from the time I shook his hand. But as time went on, and I'm talking about two or three years, I felt real comfortable with him. And... Uh, I know that when I'd always sit next to him because I want to make sure I understood what he was saying. I didn't want to miss anything in a meeting because a lot of times there would be miscommunication after meeting was over with him. So I want to make sure I knew exactly what he was saying. And sometimes I'd say to him, I'd grab his coattail when he'd get up to leave, and I'd say, excuse me, sir. I said, there was a couple points there I'm not sure. Would you run those by me one more time? I want to make sure I got it straight. And then he'd go right through the whole little thing and tell me. And then sometimes he'd say, shit, Roy, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we had a, you know, we were very honest with each other. And uh, I I felt comfortable with that because an awful lot of the guys were just yes men. 
you know, they were just trying to sing and dance to please him rather than speaking their, uh, how they really felt. Yeah. I would think Walt Disney wouldn't like to be surrounded by yes men. No, Walt didn't like yes men. <clears throat> I'll give you a story about that. A group of them went to New Orleans when they were work, working on the pirate ride. <clears throat> a lot of the businessmen, the business side of Walt, and uh, they were going to have breakfast. <clears throat> and so uh, one of the fellows says, well, I'll have ham and eggs. And then the, uh, somebody else said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll have uh, toast and this and that and the other thing. And then finally they came to Walt. Walt said, well, I'll like to have a, a waffle with strawberries. And he just finished saying that, and the first guy said, excuse me, you know, I'd like to change my order and have, uh, that sounds really good, so I, I think I'll have that. And they said, okay. And so then the other fellow said, yeah, that's a good idea. He says, both of those, yeah, that's great. So I, I think I'll have strawberries and uh, and a waffle as well. And Walt looked at all of them, stood up, and, and just got up and walked out <laughs> and, and didn't have any breakfast. You know, I, I knew, I used to watch how these guys would sing and dance with him when we'd have work sessions. And I thought to myself, how the hell does he put up with all of this? But uh, the thing that I, I loved about Walt, he loved all the guys that worked for him, and he treated them beautifully, and they were his team. And he always used to brag about everybody that worked for him as these are my guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned that in your, in your autobiography, how much, how supportive he was you know, of, of everyone on his team. Uh, one of the things that's really unique about your book is the way you humanize Walt Disney. Um, you really bring out how Walt had a playful side and, and a really great sense of humor. And, and, and um, you know, again, that's something that we don't get out of a lot of other books. Yes, he had a great sense of humor. And, he, you know, the thing that was, uh, that the humor was that he'd always talk about his family. And he'd come in and tell us little stories, and he'd crack us up. I know one of the cute stories was that every time uh, they were doing a new film, he'd take bits and pieces of that film home with him and, and run it in his little theater that he had at home and have his, the maid or the housekeeper and his wife, Lily, look at the film. And he says a lot of times they wouldn't like it and they'd just get up and leave. And he came in and said, you know, when they do that, I knew it was a good film. <laughs> well, well, you know, Walt, Walt didn't believe in critics. He believed in the reaction of the people. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. He was good at that. Yeah. Now, a turning point in your career was when you saw a mobile made of a clothes hanger, pencils uh-huh. and erasers by um, Diz- by Frank Armitage. So yeah. how did this change the direction of your career? Well, it changed my life because uh, I had never seen a mobile before, and Frank Armitage built this mobile, and uh, it was just, I was blown away by it. And I asked Frank, I said, what is that? And he says, it's a mobile. And I said, what's a mobile? He said, well, there's a gentleman by the artist by the name of Alexander Calder that invented these. He says, you get a book in the library and uh, read about it. And I said, okay. So I looked up Calder, and I fell madly in love. And so I started building mobiles every Saturday and Sunday for quite some time, and I just had a ball. And I loved the movement of the mobiles. And so... I had them hanging all over the house, and it was just great. 
So, and then Waisel Rogers uh, made a propeller from a black wing pencil and an eraser and a push pin, and he yes. sold it to you for one cent and yes. with the instructions how he built yes. it. And this yes. really affected your career too. Yeah, that really changed it <clears throat> because I got so hooked on those propellers. Uh, what happened was when I bought the propeller for a, a penny, and I and I thought, well, I can't just have a propeller on a push pin, so. I did a little cardboard uh, helicopter, and I put the propeller on the top of the helicopter, and I had it uh, on the, next to the wall. Now, if you put the, the propellers close to the wall, because of the air conditioning that we have, it would make the propeller spin. So I had this little helicopter next to the wall behind my desk, and it was really spinning beautifully. Well, one of the fellows in the art props department came to me and said, Roly, what is that? How do you do that? And I said, I'm not going to charge you a penny. I'll show you how. So I showed him how to make it. <clears throat> he says, well, come on down. He says, I'll show you mine after he made it. So I went down there, and he'd added two little circular pieces of cardboard. And so I took one look at it, and I was blown away because I said, your propeller is bigger than mine. <laughs> and so then I went back, and I started building propellers, propellers, propellers. And I actually had my whole room filled with these propellers. Well, T.E., that worked there at the studio, came in one day and said, you know, Roly, those propellers are really great. He said, you should have an exhibit in the library and show off your propellers. So I signed up for it, and I had the exhibit in the library with my mobiles, my propellers, and some of my paintings. And I, and the librarian called me and said, by the way, Roly, she says, Walt was in today. And I said, he was? And I said, and then at that time, of course, I had my marijuana posters down the hallway. And I said, did he go down the hall? She says, oh, yeah. And I said, did he see, see my posters? And she said, yes, he did. And I said, what happened? She said, he laughed. Anyway, he absorbed those propellers and never forgot them. Because when it came time for the World's Fair, he came to me and says, I want you to build a tower of propellers for me as a marquee for It's a Small World. So that's how the Tower of the Four Winds got started. Yeah. Now, now, can you tell our listeners about these doper posters or marijuana posters, and how did uh, you get into that? Well, that has to do with a Christmas card. Um, I would say I, was, I went to night school to learn color because I wasn't winning any color at the studio because I was working with a pencil all day long. And so the, the class I took was a design class, and the, the teacher said, that what I want you, everyone, to do is make a uh, Christmas card that looks like it's a woodblock cut. So I went to the library and I got a book out on woodblock cuts and I found a, a picture of a, a wooden Indian. And I thought, oh God, that's great. So I, I drew the wooden Indian so I'd get the feel of what a woodblock uh, drawing uh, would look like. And so I had this Indian uh, on this piece of cardboard in my office for a long period of time. And one day I thought to myself, I should make that into a poster. So I was thinking about making it into Smoke El Ropo. Well, I thought that was kind of corny. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll put Smoke Marijuana. And I thought, oh, God, Roland, you can't do that. This is 1957. You don't do things like that. And so then I thought, well, maybe I'll spell marijuana backwards. And then I said, no, I think I'll finally just do it. So I did the marijuana poster, and I wrote all the right little pieces on there. They were humorous. And... Uh, had it in my room, and uh, every time most of my friends would come in, they'd say, you know, if you ever get any of those printed, we'll buy one from you. 
And I said, well, would you give me a dollar? And they said, yeah. So I went to the printer and I said, I'd like to have some of these printed. So I had 600 of them printed. And so I started selling marijuana posters on the side. <laughs> and I went around to the different uh, stores in Toluca Lake and sold them on consignment. So that's how the marijuana posters got started. Oh, that's funny. What a great story. <laughs> Now, you were at the Disney Studio at probably one of the busiest times in its history because you were working on the pavilions for the World's Fair, the yeah. Haunted and Haunted Mansion and Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean were being worked on, and Walt Disney gave his artists and Imagineers a lot of freedom just to be creative, even if their efforts didn't appear in a film or an attraction. And I know you have some really good stories about working with Yale Gracie on gags and illusions for the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, well, working with Yale was incredible. Uh, Walt gave Yale and I, uh, he always liked to put teams of people together to work on something. He always liked teamwork. So he put Yale and I together and said, I want you guys to work on concepts for the Haunted Mansion. So we spent a solid year in a great big room all by ourselves coming with ideas of things that we'd like to put in the mansion. And Yale, of course, was a tinker toy man, and he was absolutely excellent at it. So uh, he came up with all these great ideas, and he also came up with a Pepper's Ghost. So he had a, uh, he got a hold of some footage of uh, Mirror Mirror on the Wall haunts Conrad's face, and Yale got it on a loop projector and he shot it on this little Beethoven statue that he had. And, God, it was just incredible to have that projected on a three-piece, you know, a three-dimensional object. So it, got, it was so good that Walt fell in love with it. And, of course, we, we made larger ones. But that's where the uh, Leota's head in the ball came from. Huh. Interesting. Now, one of my favorite stories is when you were working on some of your concepts from the Haunted Mansion and your colleagues didn't, they thought they were a little too weird. So when it came time for everyone to present their ideas to Walt Disney, they sort of put you out off in the corner somewhere where Walt couldn't quite see you. Um, I had always felt from the very beginning when I was working on the mansion that it was corny and it was humorous. It was it was. Uh, I felt that if you're going to do a, a real haunted mansion and put it at Disneyland, it should be scary and it should have a lot of very unusual things in it. And I'd seen a film, uh, Beauty and the Beast, that was a French film, and in that particular film, uh, the Beast would come home to his castle at night, and there would be human arms on the walls holding the torches. Uh, there was uh, faces with steam coming out of their mouths uh, on the wall over the fireplace. And there was a, a hand holding a handful of grapes. And uh, so when the, uh, beast, the beast would reach for the grapes, uh, the hand would ex- extend the grapes to him. <clears throat> so I thought, this is the kind of stuff that should be in the mansion. Well, when we came back from the World's Fair, we had nothing to do. I just sat there and started drawing stuff that was kind of serialistic that I thought should be in the haunted mansion. Well, by that, by the time I got started on that, because nobody else had gotten an assignment, well, Dick Irvine felt, well, if I'm working on the Haunted Mansion, he'd put some of it, because Walt had not given us an assignment. So he'd put all the other guys working on the mansion. So after about a month, 
uh, he called Walt and said, you know, a group of us over here have been working on the Haunted Mansion would like to give you a presentation. So we set up the room, <clears throat> and the other guys had their all their artwork on the walls down at the other end of the uh, room, and having Walt's chair facing in their direction. But they didn't like what I did, so they put me over in the corner. Dick Irvine didn't like it, so they put me in the corner. Well, anyway, they they gave their little talk and everything, and Walt finally turned to Dick Irvine and said, <clears throat> uh, Dick, is that in? Dick says, yeah, that's in. He says, well, what's all this stuff in the corner? That He said, well, that's stuff that Rolly did. <clears throat> and he said, what did Rolly do? And he said, we don't know. Ask him. So Walt <laughs> came over to me, and so he and I both rolled our chairs over to where my little model was and where the drawings were, and I took him through everything and told him that I felt the mansion should have some very unusual stuff in it. And he kept saying, well, how do you use it? How do you want to do it? And I said, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. I said, I just think that it needs it. So <clears throat> he and I got into this conversation back and forth. Where do you want to put it? I don't know. Finally, he said, okay. And he got, and he got up and said, I'm out of here. Well, when he left, everybody said, we told you that the stuff was too weird for Walt to like. And I said, I know, but I had a good time. <clears throat> well, the next morning, I came to work, and uh, Walt sitting at my desk. And uh, I, and he says, you son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, Jesus, what's this? He said, <clears throat> I didn't get any sleep last night because I was thinking about all that weird stuff that you did. And I said, wow. And he said, but I, have a, I, I know how to use it. I said, you do? And he says, yeah. He said, uh, we'll do a museum of the weird, and you can design all the weird stuff that you want, and we're going to tell the public and our guests that we've collected the weirdest things that we possibly could from all over the world <clears throat> and brought them to Disneyland. Well, then he had to bring all the guys out, and he gave them the presentation of it. And when he got finished, he said, now I'm going to go home and go to bed. <clears throat> and all the guys came up to me then and said, oh, God, really, we knew you had something. <laughs> it was all those yes men again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, the Haunted Mansion was the first attraction to be completed without Walt's guidance. If Walt had not passed away, do you think the mansion would have been different? They, well, God, yes. First of all, it was a walkthrough. And uh, he, you know, there's a lot of uh, dis discrepancies here. Walt wanted it as a walkthrough, and because operations were scared to death that there might be vandalism, they made it, a boat, I mean, made it an omnimover right. And I was just going to say, and Yale wanted it as a boat ride. But um, <laughs> so if, if Walt had lived, it would have been a walkthrough because it would have been a lot different. Yale and I developed individual rooms that would have a show that they'd put on in there. And each room, the show would run for maybe three minutes. And then you'd get up and leave that room and go to another room. And in that way, <clears throat> you really could take, use Pepper's Ghost. The one room that we did was supposedly the captain, the sea captain's room, where he it was his room at home, but he had murdered his wife and bricked her up in the fireplace. And then in when you come into the room, the doors are open, the windows are blowing, there's a storm outside, and right in the middle of the room, all of a sudden, the, the, the ghost of the sea captain appears. And we, we had the, uh, it was all staged, obviously, because it was Pepper's ghost. So we had him in a shower. So on the, when it was reflected on the stage, you could actually see this water pouring off of him and running all over the floor. <clears throat> and when he, and when you see him in there for, I don't know, maybe about 30 seconds or whatever, then all of a sudden 
her ghost appears behind a brick, the brick fireplace, and she's screaming. And as she screams, she flies out and attacks him, and they both disappear. Well, I mean, that was a mind blower. Walt saw that and just fell in love with it because it was something that had a little storyline that actually followed through. But you couldn't do that with a ride because you can't look at one spot for three minutes. So that's that we lost that, and that the other rooms would have been just as beautiful to do. Wow, wow, that's too bad that we lost yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So now Walt also asked you to design the pre-show for the tiki room, and was this because you were an expert on tiki gods? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I was not an expert on the tiki's. <laughs> I had to look that up in the library. And thank God for John Hench, who told me every time to do something, he says, go to the library and dig it out. And I did. I got a book on the uh, tiki's, and so I learned what they look like. I learned the stories behind the tiki's because the missionaries had written a book about the uh, Whispers on the Wind was the name of the book, and they talked about all the beliefs that the islanders had. And so I actually did some sketches of each one of those uh, gods because Walt wanted uh, some tiki's out front when you were waiting to see it was a restaurant when you were waiting to have dinner then the tiki's would tell stories to you while you were standing there and give you maybe a 12-minute show and uh, so I had to come up with all that good stuff and it was fun it was fun and you learned how to sculpt yes I never sculpted before in my life I went to Blaine Gibson and I said Walt bought off on my pictures, so we got to get these sculpted. He says, I don't have time to sculpt them. He says, what do you mean you don't have time to sculpt them? I said, and he said, well, because I'm too busy. I said, who's going to sculpt them? He said, you are. I said, I've never sculpted before in my life. He said, well, you're going to sculpt now. So he taught me how to build armatures, and then from then on, it was up to me to push the clay onto the armature and then take, take my sketch and sculpt from it. Yeah. And and because you are so good with mobiles, you also designed the bird mobile for the yeah. tiki room. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And that has to be one of the most spectacular scenes in the show. Too. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, the bird mobile was something else again. You know, it was uh, Walt wanted a uh, hundred birds to come out of the ceiling on a chandelier, and so he asked me to design it. Well, I. I didn't know how to design the chandelier or the mobile or whatever it was. So he had the machine shop build this thing and uh, sent it over to us. And, and it could only handle 30 birds. It was big. It was, it was too big for, it wasn't big enough for 100 because that wouldn't even fit in the room. So uh, we, I had to build 30 perches, and then I had to make it look like it was driftwood. And so they put me up on a Raymond lift. And I'd go up there and sculpt all day long up in the air. Wow. <laughs> so it's a good thing you weren't afraid of heights. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. But I did have to come down and go to the bathroom once in a while. So. They'd bring me down for lunch, too. <laughs> so now you had a hand in most of the pavilions Walt Disney built for the 1964-65 World's Fair in yes. New York. Yes. Now, one unique project you worked on our listeners might not know about is the mechanical orchestra for the Ford Magic Skyway Pavilion. Right. Uh, can, can you tell our listeners about this orchestra? Yeah, this was, <clears throat> was a fun project. Um, 
Walt always liked to entertain people when they were standing in line. And um, so he came to me and he says, Roy, I want you to d design a little orchestra. So I said, okay. So I drew some kind of abstract little orchestras. And then I had a meeting with Walt. And for some reason or another, and I don't know exactly how it came about, because our little work sessions were kind of crazy. But by the time we got finished with it, I think Walt said, why don't you make the instruments out of automobile parts, Roland, or Roly? And I said, sure, Walt. So I did. I went back and I started, and I got a hold of Bob Gurr, and we got a parts book from Ford, and of all the parts that cars are made from, and he and I went to it together, and we realized that if we cut, if we took a axle and cut it shorter, it could be the stem of a, of a trumpet. And then if we take some of the uh, uh, pulleys that they had and turn them backwards, it could look like the end of a horn, of a, a trumpet. So we actually, Bob Gurr and I worked real close together, and probably within a week we completely designed this uh, little show made out of automobile parts, and we showed it to Walt. He fell in love with it, and they built it. Yeah, I wish I they could. I built a model. I did build a model of it, though, so that yeah. they would have know what they were working with. Yeah. I wish they could have found a place for that at Disneyland. That sounds yeah, yeah, that would have been great. I don't know whatever happened to it. Yeah. Now, not only did you build the Tower of the Four Winds, but you worked closely with Mary Blair on designing and building It's a Small World. Yes. Um, now, how did you two work together to design the attraction? Well, first of all, I fell in love with her style, and I fell in love with all of her work. I fell in love with her color. So it's very easy for me to interpret her because I, I knew how to copy her. I actually knew how to copy her better than she did. She could do everything flat, but when it came to going three-dimensional, she had a hell of a time with that. So I used to help her with that. But we worked beautifully together, absolutely beautifully together. And then you, were, you and Mary were responsible for then reconstructing it at Disneyland as well. Yes, yes, yes. Well, actually... The facade at Disneyland, uh, well, I mean, Dick Irvine asked Mary to design the facade for Disneyland, and she had a lot of problems with it because it was three-dimensional. And I knew that she was not doing too well with it because she didn't, she didn't know how to tra trace herself into three dimensions. So we had a meeting with Walt. She showed it to him, and I could tell that Walt really wasn't buying off on it because she was pretending she was a little girl building a facade out of wooden blocks, and it didn't come off at all, uh, very good at all. So Walt finally said to her something about, Mary, I think we better take another look at this. Well, it kind of hurt her feelings, so she went home, and she never came back. <laughs> no, oh. she came back years later. But anyway, I went to Dick Irvine, and I said, Dick, I know what Walt wants. Just leave me alone, and I'm not answering anybody but Walt, and I'll do the facade. So I got Fred Jerger, and he and I built a cardboard mock-up model, rather, rather, of that whole facade, which is, you know, 600 feet long, and uh, showed it to Walt. We designed it, built it in five days, showed it to Walt, and Walt said, great, build it. <laughs> now, everything, you know, Walt gave his approval on everything, on every project. So how did things change at the studio and at Disneyland after Walt passed? Well, well, first of all, the, the, the brains were gone. I mean, the imagination, the, the power, 
You know, I mean, he was a, a dictator, but the most beautiful dictator that was ever put on this planet because he knew exactly, uh, he was the best casting director. He knew exactly who to put on what, and he had a philosophy of what, see, he visualized things when they're finished. I mean, when the dream, when we'd have a work session about something, not a drawing had been done, but he would visualize what it looked like at the end. So because of that, his direction was perfect. We had no one in charge anymore that, that knew how to do that. I mean, he was the art director, the story man, the, the illustrator, all wrapped up in one. <clears throat> and without that kind of person running the company, uh, as from the standpoint of uh, design, uh, it, it slowly became awkward. And then, then it got into uh, power, you know, political power. And a lot of, you know, it, it became kind of a little bit of a nightmare. And that's when I thought, well, I'm not going to stay here much longer. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the projects Walt was working on was the Florida Project, and you were put in charge of the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland attractions. And I've always wondered, why were the dark rides from Disneyland brought over to the Magic Kingdom rather than creating new dark rides based <laughs> on other films? That's exactly my question. In fact, they gave me the job. <clears throat> Dick Irvine said, Rolly, want you to design the dark rides for Florida. So I picked all the dark rides that were not done for Disneyland. <clears throat> I had a, uh, a, well, let's see, let's see. Oh, I don't want the, there was the, um, well, I would go to the Dalmatian ride. I was going to Sleeping Beauty. You know, I had all these other dark rides that I wanted to do. But <clears throat> Disneyland came to me and said, you know, Rolly, the most popular dark ride at Disneyland is the Toad Ride. So for God's sakes, do the Toad Ride. So I said, okay. But I said, uh, they said, also, we, we need that attendance so you can make it twice as big as what the one is at Disneyland. And I said, yeah, I can do that. So what I did was <clears throat> I designed two track layouts inside the building. So one car on the right side of the ride would go into the building. The car that you loaded on the left side of the ride would go in, but they both were on different tracks, and they went into different rooms. So whoever went on the A ride, they'd come out, and they'd seen an entirely different story than the ones on the B ride. And I did that on purpose, so when people came out, they would be confused if they talked to anybody in their family that had been on the other side of the ride. And what it did, it doubled the capacity, and it still was the most popular dark ride in Florida. Meanwhile, uh, they they scrapped all the other ones I did. I did want to do the Alice ride, but I wanted you to go through the ride in a teacup, and I wanted you to be able to spin the teacup while you were going through the ride, so the ride would be in, in three feet all the way around you, so you were totally wrapped up in it. But uh, and I didn't, and I wanted to mix it with UV lighting as well as black light, and I don't know, it was just a lot of, I don't know, I was... <laughs> Coloring outside the lines again. That was very and, cool. And, and, and it didn't go so good. <laughs> but, you know, they, they did take that idea and used it on the Roger Rabbit attraction years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, now, they did that. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, when the guy that designed it started talking about it, my son was in a meeting with him. He said, oh, this is what we're going to do. And my, my son said, yeah, that's something my dad did 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but your Mr. Toad attraction is probably the most missed ride at Disney World. I mean, people loved that. Oh, your I know Mr. that. Toad. Well, I was, you know, they took it out. 
they put in, I, I forget who they put in there. I think they you know, put Winnie the happened. Pooh in there. They were trying to find something for designers to do, so they that's when they decided to do that. Yeah, that's too bad. That was yeah, a wonderful I'm, ride. I'm sick about it. Well, I'm sorry I didn't take over and, and run the damn place. Yeah, really? <laughs> you know what? I told Dick Irvine I wanted his job, and I did. Yeah. And if I if I got his job, I would have stayed. <laughs> <laughs> now a w- another wonderful dark ride you did that was one of the favorites from of my children's were, was actually at Knott's Berry Farm, and that yeah. was called Knott's Berry Tales in the yes. Roaring Twenties area of the yes. park. Yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, uh, so, t- how did you get involved in Knott's Berry Farm and in designing this attraction? Well, we, I won't. I'll tell you the short story, not the long story. <clears throat> um, I was working for Circus World at the time in Florida, and Marion Knott had decided that she wanted a dark ride in Knott's. <clears throat> and uh, one of the one of her people that was a uh, one of her office. I'm trying to think of what his title was. I think he had to do with. Um, it wasn't operations, but I think it had to do with finance. And she was talking to him about the finance, and he had worked for Disney, and I knew him. And he, and he said, you know, what you should do is get Rolly Crump to design the ride. And she said, who's Rolly? He says, well, I worked with Rolly when I was at Disney. He said, and he'd be the best person to do that. So they contacted me when I was at Circus World and said, when are you coming back? And I said, I don't know, maybe within the next six months. So they said, well, we'll wait until you come back, and then we'll have you do the the dark ride. So I said, great. So when I came back, I contacted him and I said, I'd be glad to do the ride. Yeah, that that was just so clever and very charming. And I know on YouTube, you know, people can go in and watch the attraction. Well, I mean, it was so much fun. Great. It was. It was yeah, very well, clever. I got I got the best team in the world. I got Bob Bruner that had worked at Disney Studios to, to write the song and the, and the music. And that song was just incredible. The music was incredible. And the team of kids that worked with me were incredible. I hired, I wanted to do illusions in the ride, and I didn't want the, Disney to think I stole the illusions because I'd worked on the mansion. So I hired a magician to come in and do illusions in the little gypsy camp area. Mm-hmm. So if anybody said, well, Rolly really stole that from Disney, I'd say, no, I've got a man right here that's a magician that did it. So... <laughs> Now, um, you returned to Disney to work on Epcot Center, but yes. this this was a very different Epcot Center from the one envisioned by Walt Disney. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Well, Walt passed, and so, you know what, they panicked. They didn't know what to do, and I know the story goes that the uh, governor of Florida got upset with Disney and said, you promised, promised us Epcot, and you haven't done anything about it. So that lit a fire underneath our our heads to get this thing done and so they tried to do it and, and John Hinch was put in charge of it and the only thing John could come up with because he couldn't try to design a city was a permanent World's Fair so that's what it was that's what they tried to do mm-hmm. Do you think if Walt had lived we would have seen Epcot City? Oh yeah, oh god no question about it Oh, no question. I mean, he had it nailed. He knew. See, remember I told you, he would see a finished product? He had it. He's, he's, he went so far as coming into a meeting with us one day because there was going to be hotels 
all around the property, and one of them was going to be a Polynesian hotel. He brought in a huge conch shell and said, this is going to be the basin. And when you go to wash your hands in the bathroom, this is what the bathroom uh, basin is going to look like. And he had, because that's how far ahead he was. He knew exactly what the interior of the buildings were going to look like. <laughs> but he, he definitely was a man of vision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you worked on some of probably the most popular pavilions in Future World. You worked on the Wonders of Life Pavilion, yes. the, the Land Pavilion. Yes. yes. Um, and, and, but what you designed for the Wonders of Life, you, you well, had a very different concept for sport. Oh, God, yes. Well, again, I had the best team in the world. Uh, I had Scott Hennessy and Steve Kirk working with me, and these little guys are just exploded with ideas. Now, <clears throat> the Wonders of Life Pavilion had a ride through the human body, and I had Frank Armitage design that ride because he did medical illustrations. He did book and book and book of, of medical illustrations of what it looks like inside your body. So we were going to have a ride through the body. And uh, yeah, actually, you had been reduced in size, and you actually rode through the body, and it was uh, the stories that Frank and I came up with were really exciting to do that. We had a big theater that we were going to explain about. Uh, well, there's a, a great story here. <clears throat> I went. They had a uh, health conference, and uh, before we started this, uh, the, when we started the pavilion, and they had all the health educators from the United States come to this, and they all argued with each other. When we'd sit in luncheons, they'd complain about, some of them would complain, oh, they served us an egg. You can't eat eggs. And so pretty soon, I sat in all these work sessions to these health educators doing nothing but arguing with themselves. <clears throat> and so we had one health educator that was the best, Dr. Dr. I call him Dr. Chuck, Charles Lewis out of UCLA. And I went to him. I said, Dr. Chuck, isn't there something that they all will agree on? He says, yeah. He says, the health, eight health habits. And I said, what? <laughs> why did you? See, we're already halfway designing the pavilion. I said, why didn't you tell me that to begin with? So I did a carousel carousel, which is a carousel going around, and it was like an, a big old iron carousel with all these iron figures like you'd see, and one was about brushing your teeth, one was about uh, exercise. Each each. Uh, character on the carousel represented one of the health habits and it was going to be in the uh, it was called the carousel of progress I mean the carousel of uh, health but uh, and then we had individuals little theaters you could go to a theater and you could learn about what doctors do when they, uh, they look you know check you over only we did it with little robots so we had robots teaching you that we had Donald Duck and, and arguing with his uncle Duck about uh, the health habits. So we had all these health habits stories. We had a theater of the mouth, and you went in and you actually sat in a mouth. So this this was stuff that I loved it. I've got a whole series of drawings that I did on it, and I'm, I'm sad that it, they didn't stay with the original idea. It sounds amazing. Now you you continue to keep busy working on projects, including writing your autobiography with Jeff Heimbuck, and you're producing audio recordings with even more stories. Yes. Um, your autobiography is, it's kind of a cute story, 
And yeah. I think we, we know why you called it that, because you've said that several times. It's kind of a cute story. Okay. Yeah, I always start off saying, well, it's kind of a cute story. Yeah. That's a little <laughs> term that I constantly used. So that's how the book got the name. Now, what made you decide to write your story down? I always wanted to do a book. Mm-hmm. I always I had done a scrapbook at one time, and uh, I thought it'd be great to do a book. And when Marie and I got together, <clears throat> spent time together, uh, we talked about you know, Rolling, you ought to do a book. I had a lot of people that come to me when I would give presentations and say, you know, you ought to do a book. So Marie is really the the catalyst that got got this whole thing started. So she she and I talked about it, and then we started researching people that might do the book, and it all fell into place. We went through a lot of stuff, but it all happened, and thank God Jeff took it and did a gorgeous job on it. So I'm thrilled with the book. You know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to pass on the stories about Walt. There's been so many things written about him that are incorrect, and they're really ugly, and I hate them. So a lot of, all most of the stories, I, every story I, I put in there was to show what Wall was really, really like. And I feel really, really good about that. Yeah, your, your book is wonderful. And as I mentioned earlier, you definitely humanize Walt. You show his fun side. But you also talk about your design process, what you went through to your whole creative process and it's full of wonderful photos of your artwork of your yeah. models i mean it's it's really a delightful book to read oh god um, thank you mm-hmm. so and for our listeners who want to learn more about roly and walt disney and all the marvelous attractions roly and walt built for us to enjoy we'll have a link to roly's book it's kind of a cute story and his audio recordings in our show notes now, Rowley, in, t- in 2004, you were named a Disney legend, along with your fellow Imagineers, Alice Davis and Bob Gurr. Um, how were you notified of this honor? They sent me a letter, and uh, I looked at the letter, and I said, I'm not going to that, because um, it's one of those things that I, I never, at that particular time, uh, when they sent me the letter, I didn't think I was worth being a legend, and I thought all these other people that I knew should be legends, now realizing that the ones I thought should be legends were already legends. <laughs> so my son said, you know, you're going to go to that. And I said, I don't know. He said, no, it's I'll throw chains around you and throw you in the back of the truck and carry you up there. <clears throat> and, of course, Marie said, come on, don't be stubborn, Roland. You're, you're, you're going to go there. Well, it was the greatest day of my life. I fell in love with the whole day, the whole thing. I was thrilled about it. And now that I look back on it, I say, yeah. I'm a legend. <laughs> That's right. You you definitely are. It's well deserved. I, I, I paid my dues. <laughs> you did. Now, in 2009, you received your window on Disneyland's Main Street, yeah. and it's located over the porch of the China Closet. And right. Now, what do you remember from that day? Uh, that was incredible. In fact, I've said this numerous times. To get the Legend Award was very special. But to get a window on Main Street is far greater because this goes back to when I first started working at Disneyland and I saw these windows and I was blown away by them because they were very, to me, they were very famous people. They were people that worked at the studio and and I thought, God, that's great. And I never thought, ever even thought about being a legend because they were just a bunch of old guys. 
And so it never dawned on me that someday I was going to be an old guy. So uh, anyway, that's why I, uh, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Now, your window reads Fargo's Palm Parlor, Predictions yeah. That Will Haunt You, Bizarre, Whimsical, and Weird, Designs to Die For, Roland F. Crump, Assistant to the Palm Reader. Right. And then there, there are three cards. There's an image of a tiki, the Tower yeah. of the Four Winds, and a coffin clock from the Museum of the Weird. Right. And then there's a smaller sign hanging yeah. um, over the sidewalk. So now right. what's the story behind this? Why a palm reader? Well, because <clears throat> it has to do with John Hinch. John Hinch was my mentor, and he was a palm reader. And so, and he and I were really close for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and he trained me. Like I said, he was my mentor. So, I mean, it was very, and because of, I guess they did some research, knowing full well how close John and I were together, and uh, because he read palms, and uh, I, was, <laughs> I was sort of his assistant. Oh, okay. It's always nice to know the story behind the signs, or behind the windows. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm amazed that the person that did the window knew that story. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I met him, and he was the sweetest kid. I just loved him. I, I can, in fact, it's the most beautiful window anywhere at Disneyland. I don't think there's another window that graphic-wise is as, is as beautiful as that one. It is. I, I agree. And it's only one of two windows that has a sign. Um, beneath it. <laughs> I think Bob Gers is the other window. Now, when you visit Disneyland and you see so many people enjoying what you and Walt Disney and your colleagues have created, what goes through your mind? Well, I don't know. I just think that it's the greatest place that was ever built uh, because of the man and the fact that you go into Disneyland, you forget everything else, and it's just always—it's got—it's always been a wonderful experience. And the uh, art that—that's behind everything, because everything's a piece of art. The whole place is nothing more than a series of pieces of sculpture and art. <clears throat> now, I'll tell you an interesting uh, story. May I worked when I worked at Disneyland. I worked with every one of the divisions. And I really got to know the divisions quite a bit. And, uh, and and being in maintenance, they were always concerned about the cost of taking care of stuff. And they came to me one time, and they said, you know, there's a lot of iron work up on top of the buildings there. And you said, you know, you really can't see it. And it rusts out, and we have to re-clean it off and paint it. Rolly, can't we just get rid of all that ironwork up there? And I said, no, because <clears throat> Walt always put something in the park for everybody. I said, that reason that ironwork's up there is there's going to be some people that come through here that are ironworkers, and they're going to look up there and see that and say, wow, that's really neat. <clears throat> and there's a story even further behind that. I was with Bill Evans one time, and we were, we were walking down uh, Adventureland, and there was some some people from, uh, obviously from Egypt or India. They had their, their little outfits on and everything, and they were looking in this one little area. And Bill Evans turned to me and says, you know what they're looking at? I said, no, what? He says, they're looking at their native flower. 
Now that's the attention to detail. Walt wanted, because there was always something at Disneyland for everyone. That's that's amazing. <laughs> that, that it went down to that level of yeah. detail, even the flowers. Yeah. Now, now, when you look back on your relationship with Walt Disney, is there one memory of Walt that just really stands out for you? Uh, boy, I don't know. Um, well, they're all beautiful, and I'm trying to think of one that stands out for me. I mean, uh, I guess one. I guess when I was honest about uh, with him about the Tower of the Four Winds, and when I told him it was a piece of crap. And and he looked at me and said, Roland, it can't be a piece of crap. It cost me $200,000. I think that stands out because he and I could talk to each other, you know, and, and come from the heart and, and talk. In other words, there was never, he realized that I wasn't, in, you know, worried about arguing with him or dis- disagreeing with him. And so I think it's probably every every time I had a one-to-one with him, was special, so I don't think any of them is more special than the other one, you know. And I loved always putting my hand on his, on his arm when he when we sit next to each other. I felt see, I wasn't afraid to touch him, and I wasn't afraid to tease him and kid with him, and I just felt there was a comfort level there that we both had with each other that was very special. And I one of the stories that I heard, this is a behind the scenes story. But the fellow that uh, um, got me to do the project at Knott's Berry Farm told me years years later, you know, well, it was when I was working on the Berry Tales, and he says, you know, I was in a meeting with Walt one day with a bunch of us. This was all finance meetings, and they were talking. Walt was talking about Wed, and he told all the guys in the meeting, he says, the only one that's got any spark over at Wed is Roley Crump, and to hear that from somebody outside was absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Really? I mean, you must have been just in the clouds when you heard that. Oh, yeah. Well, there's one other one. When Walt passed away, uh, there was a big luncheon at the 33 Club, and uh, we we were getting ready to open up the new Tomorrowland. So we were all there to have a buffet, and Roy was there. And I had never met Roy. You know, I just knew of him, but I never met him. And he walked over to me, and he said, are you Roly Crump? And I said, yes. He says, my brother used to talk a lot about you. <laughs> and he shook my hand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Now, you've led a remarkable creative life. What would you like young people growing up to learn from you and your life? Oh, God. <clears throat> Well, to be a sponge, <laughs> and I think be a sponge, learn to pay, uh, draw behind, beyond, be outside the lines, and believe in your crazy ideas. Those are the three things that I think are more important. And also, being a good sponge means research. I think you can't do any job unless you do research on it and really get a feel and there's a story behind research. So there's a story behind everything that you design. And that's true about my paintings. There's a story behind every painting I've ever done. Some crazy little story. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that's why people have to get your book, It's Kind yeah. of a Cute Story, to hear all of those 
wonderful stories. Now, Disneyland will be celebrating its 60th anniversary soon. So going forward in time, on July 17th, 2055, when Disneyland celebrates its 100th anniversary, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, God, I don't know. I have a hard time with me. You know, I have a hard time talking about me unless I'm giving a presentation, you know. Mm-hmm. So I have a hard time with me, so I can't I can't answer that one. Although I think, if nothing more, um, that I was probably the most imaginative guy that ever, ever worked there. I think I had more imagination than any of them. Well, you know, I think you've proven now in our conversation today that, that you definitely have a wonderful imagination and that you are a great storyteller. So, yeah, I am. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually know I'm the best when it, when it comes to my subject. <laughs> my subject, I, I'm the best because we're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, Roly. Thank you for sharing your creativity, artistry, and humor to bring joy and beauty into the lives of countless children and adults. And thank, well, thank you, you for interviewing me. On- and thank you for honoring us by being on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. Okay, thank my you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, to get to know Disney legend Rolly Crump better and to learn about the wonderful attractions and art he created for us to enjoy, read his book, It's Kind of a Cute Story, and listen to Rolly himself tell even more stories through his audio recordings, and we will have links to all of those in our show notes. That concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening, and I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by Walt Disney. 